Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. So hi everyone. Hi folks on Zoom. Hi folks who might be joining on uh, Facebook. And hello to those who might be listening to this on Temple Beth Am's podcast. This is the fourth for now in a series on um, the Haktama, the introduction by Rav Cook, the great first chief Ashkenazi rabbi of pre-state Palestine, to his own book called Shabbat Haaretz, his treatise on the laws of Shemitah. And again, this is the fourth installment. We'll take a break after this. And then uh, if there's interest in going further into the book, because we're really just scratching the surface of it, we can begin again starting in January. Um, just to kind of discuss where, we, where we've been, we spent a session dealing a lot with Rav Cook in general, his philosophy the story of his life and how um, his experience trying to build community um, and re, uh, reimagine life in uh, the early 20th century might have linked him more directly to issues of the land. Uh, it was the first time in a long time that there was a significant population uh, living in Palestine that were obligated to the laws of Shemitah, no matter how from of a person you are, if you're living outside the land of Israel, you're not obligated to these laws. Uh, and then we started going into his uh, general philosophy, and we're actually we actually hadn't really yet gotten into some of the core texts that talk about why his approach to Shemitah is is directly related or extends from his philosophy about what the Jew means in the world, right? And so we're going to pick up on a text in the first part of the Haktama, um, that's going to pretty quickly get us to where he gets to what therefore Shemitah is, right? So this has been um, uh, a, a lot of background, so we see where Shemitah sits in his uh, in his world. Um, I created a new text sheet, so I'm going to put the link in the, um, uh, in the chat so you can open it. I'll also share my screen. You can choose which way you want to do it. Hold on one second. Um, okay, so... Um, in the chat is the link to the Google Doc, and I will now share my screen so you could just look at the screen. You don't have to open up a new window if you don't want to, but that way you have it. Okay. Okay, so last week, uh, two weeks ago, we um, ended by looking at a text from the very opening of the Zohar, and the reason is because um, Rav Cook, in a previous section, was talking about this celestial, sacred, ecstatic union that the Jew is involved in every time he or she does a mitzvah. And we're trying to unify yud Yah, the first two letters of God's name, with vav the last letters of God's name. And it would take us a full semester in, in, in basic Kabbalistic philosophy to really understand what's going on. But he wants to raise the level of the stakes that are present at any Jewish act, right? Um, and that's in general. That's true in general, and it's going to be true also for the Shemitah. And I wanted to share with you um, this kavana that relates to this that uh, appears in some Sidurim, but not all, um, to show that in in kind of contemporary and normative Jewish practice there are recitations that we say to remind ourselves that I'm not just putting on tefillin. I'm not just lighting candles. I am right now at the precipice of the possibility of uniting earth with heaven. 
uniting uh, the feminine presence of God with the masculine presence of God, uniting we, Knesset Yisrael, this feminine eminence of um, emanation of the Jewish people with God as the male power. All that is potential or is possible at every mitzvah moment. How often do we think about that? Probably not often enough. Does it help if we uh, have liturgy, which leads us in there? I think it does, right? Um, interestingly, some of the places where you see it most commonly, even in a non-Hasidic Sidur, um, it has to do with the morning rituals of putting on talis and tefillin. You'll often have a hinanimuchan umzuman there. Behold, I am ready and prepared to perform this mitzvah. And there's a little meditation that says that, you know, may the... Um, May the performance of this mitzvah contribute to the unification of of the, of the first na- part of God's name and the second part. Um, and we also have it regarding Sirat HaOmer. In fact, a dear friends of mine wrote a beautiful tune this past year to the first line of this um, of this text, which is a general text that is applied to several different specific mitzvah moments. That we introduced to Beth Am as a lovely thing to sing before you count the Omer. And guess what? It, it adds to the experience of the moment that it's not just a, a, a nine second recitation of a prayer, but it's saying, I stand here at a significant Kazakh moment. So here's the text that you, that a version of which appears in many different Sidarim. L'shem Yichud Kudsha Brichu. For the sake of, in the name of Yichud, the bringing together of Kudsha Brichu, the Holy Blessed One, Ushchinte, and his, it's gendered, his Shechina, who's his Shechina? We spoke about this last time. His Shechina is simultaneously the lowest level of the divine emanations in the Sfirot of the Kabbalah. And it's also us. We, Knesset Yisrael, are the Shechina. And we're also in relationship with the Shechina in the, the name of the unification of all that. To bring together the Yud K, it's not written Yud Hey, because then it would be God's name. So it's written out funnily as Yud K, the Ya, the Yud Hey of God's name with the Vav Hey, in a complete uh, togetherness, Beshem Kol Yisrael, and in the name of all of Israel, that we're not just having this ritual moment all on our own, but we are connected with Jews everywhere who are counting the Omer or who are putting on Talit or who are, you probably have never seen it like this unless you happen to own a Sidur that includes this tefillah everywhere. What's this great mitzvah about to do? Davening in the morning, right? We have some kind of a, uh, a um, an entryway into tefillah in the morning, we call it Pesuke de Zimra as a recitation of Psalms. In some Sidurim, before we even do that, you say, hey, I'm about to do something significant. Say the obligatory morning prayer. Let me meditate on the fact that this moment has significance. I can be a part of the wedding together of, of the disparate parts of God. Shetikain Avraham, Shacharit, which um, Avraham, according to tradition, established. Mincha, if it's before Mincha, you say, Mincha Shetikein Yitzchak, that according to the tradition, Isaac uh, um, established in that moment where he meets Rivka for the first time, and he was lasuach basadeh, he was meditating in the field. So according to the Talmud, that means that he was davening Mincha. Arvit Shetikein Yaakov, and the evening prayer, which Yaakov uh, established in his in his um, encounter with the Holy One. In kol ha-mitzvot ha-kfulot ba, we're going to do it with all of these particulars of the mitzvah that are included in it. Letakein et shorsha to fix, to raise up, to bring together its roots, b'makom elyon, in the supernal realm. Lasod nachat ruach, that was such a lovely idea. Why am I doing this? So that I can bring a sense of ease 
and a sense of joy, to the one who created us. And I want to do God's will. I'm not only making a minion for the people who are in the room, I'm bringing some sweetness to God. May, may, the, um, may, be, may God's pleasantness be upon us. This is a, a quote from Psalms. May God establish the work of our hands. May the very work of our hands establish us. That last line meaning, may not just God support the things that we do, but may the things that we do be a, a sustainer in our lives. And one of the things that we do is, is pray and do these mitzvot. Okay, so I wanted you to see that because um, Rav Cook, who I don't know what sidur he used, but it may very well be that in 1910, 1920 Palestine, the people who davened confronted this language all the time, whether or not they thought of themselves as Kabbalists or mystics. But every time they did a mitzvah or davened a particular piece of the liturgy, they may have come across it. So that's concluding last part's material. Okay. Um, I wanted to uh, pull out for a second before going back into his text uh, directly to read this section by Rabbi Julian Sinclair. Uh, I told you about him before. He is the, um, I think he's British originally, I'm not sure, but certainly Anglo originally, lives in Israel. And he is the translator and editor and commentator on this new volume of uh, Rav Cook and his introduction to Laza Shemitah. And he has a wonderful introduction in the very beginning. This is published by Chazon, the wonderful environmental Jewish organization. Um, and he, uh, I wanted to read it because the last time we spoke, we came across some language of Rav Cook that, that can, can strike one as a little jingoistic, a little parochial saying that we, and only we have the ability to bring together the great realms of the cosmos. What does that mean in terms of what we think those who do not live the Jewish world, uh, get to do in their lives? What, what, what are, what are their options? And what is possible for them in terms of uh, contributing to the spiritual significance of reality. So look what Rabbi Julian Sinclair uh, says. The introduction to Shabbat Aretz uses phrases such as the Jewish people's collective soul and this national treasure that is imprinted deep within us. We saw some of that language above, which seemed to suggest an essential difference between Jews and others. In fact, Rav Cook's position on this question is quite complex. The nature of the Jewish people's difference from other nations is a classic fault line in Jewish thought, both um, interpolating both back then and now, right? We, we in the concerted community say, but sometimes cringe when we say, Asher bacharbanu mikol hamim, at every aliyah, we bless God who chose us from all, from all the nations. It, it, it pushes us to ask the question about whether or not we really believe that. Um, and some of the movements um, the, the more liberal movements have changed that language. The Reconstructionist movement says, Asher kervanu lavorato, we blessing God who brought us close to worship God, which is different than saying that God chose us because we were in some ways better. I am comfortable with the language of Asher Bacharbanu because I understand it as a, as a, as, as being tapped on the shoulder to do something significant and holy, not to suggest there's anything essential about us compared to other nations. Uh, that make us better. But we were invited into a relationship with God to do something holy, and anyone who wants to be on that journey with us is invited, okay? Um, so classic fault line of Jewish thought, whose medieval protagonists were Yehuda Halevi, the philosopher and poet, and Maimonides. Halevi argues for an inherent, essential difference between Jews and non-Jews. His classic book, The Kuzari, and if you want to read a great book on the Kuzari, uh, Micha Goodman, uh, the great Israeli political scientist and philosopher and teacher um, wrote, a, wrote a book on the Kuzari that 
for a while was a bestseller in Israel. And, you know, secular Jews who had maybe once heard of this book from the, from the Middle Ages were now devouring it. Um, so Yehuda Levi is the author there. He did not believe that non-Jews could achieve prophecy. Maimonides, on their hand, argued that the difference of the Jewish people consists in its having received the Torah, a unique manual of ethical training. Is it something essentialist about us, Halevi, or is it we, we, we've been given an instrument, and via that instrument, we're able to do something beautiful, but anyone who has that instrument in their hands could do something similarly beautiful. Maimonides is a little bit less parochial. Maimonides stated in the famous passage, by the way, in the laws of Shemitah, that the highest levels of spiritual life are open and accessible to all who are willing to strive for them, Jewish or non-Jewish. Uh, we could pause for a second to get a sense of, of, from the people who are on this class right now, at least on the Zoom, whom I can interact with, um, uh, w- w- which of these you uh, tend towards more, right? Are you, are you a Halevi who believes so powerfully in, in, in the essential genetic or the essential spiritual quality of the Jew such that we have access to wisdom in the world that no one else does? Or do you read it more like the Rambam, which suggests that there are many pathways to illumination and we have a cherished one and we embrace it and we commit to it, but it's not the only pathway. Just, just pausing for a second. Anyone have a have a, a contribution to that machloket? I see Larry smiling. I don't know if it's because it's got a, he's got a good cigar in his hand or because he's thinking about what to say. B- both. No, I'm a, I'm a Rambanite in this case. Why? Because it would be difficult for me to think that any people um, would be blocked from a pathway to, to achieve a, uh, a righteous life and whatever the rewards of a righteous life would be. So I want to believe that ours is a uh, is a good, tried and tested path if we follow it, but others can follow an alternative path or even borrow from our path and achieve the same results. Right. Thank you, Rebecca. Oh, you're still muted, Rebecca. You got to unmute. Yeah, um, I would say neither. Uh, in my mind, it's more of a reflective choice, meaning. Uh, we chose God, and we're um, defi- you know we're describing that choice as a reflective um, choice of, of God choosing us, but not really that the action is on our side. Great. Okay. Anyone else want to contribute? You know, I, the, the, I I'm also drawn more to the Maimonidean approach. Um, I also would have a hard time looking into the faces and the souls of non-Jewish colleagues and friends of mine and really believe that I have a super, something superior. And I think of it akin to how we think of our children. Like I, I don't necessarily believe that my children are essentially a better human beings than other people's children, but I have a deeper relationship with them than I have with your children. As much as I care about your children and I'm committed to their, to their thriving and to their being able to express themselves um, in the world in the most beautiful way possible. So the Torah is not my child, but I have, an, I, have, I have a relationship with the Torah, and I'm most invested in the Torah's beauty being illuminated in the world, and that is the way we glorify God, um, but not because I'm necessarily convinced that, that the, the Torah or the people to whom the Torah were given have, have, a, have a quality that is inaccessible to others. Right? But this has never been resolved in, in the history of the Jewish people, and Rav Cook 
placed himself a little bit in both camps, is what Julian Sinclair is saying. In modern times, the Chabad Lubavitch movement has espoused the essentialist position of Alevi, right? Like it, it's really only via the Jew and the Jewish practice, putting on putting on tefillin one more day will bring the Messiah, but nothing that you do outside of that has a chance of, of making that happen. Whereas Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, he was the, the great leader of 20th century American modern orthodoxy and the, the great teacher at Yeshiva University for many, many years, leader of 20th century modern orthodoxy, adopted the educational position of Maimonides. So he was unapology, unapologetically orthodox, but he believed that um, there was enlightenment possible for many um, many parts of reality. The Jews' responsibility was to commit as deeply as possible to the Jewish path and in that way bring the glory of God to humanity, but not in a way that disparages others. Okay, so the reason why that's interesting is because we're going to now up, up, apply some of that to our responsibility to the land because the land, the, 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 there's nothing more simultaneously universal and particularistic than land, right? Why is it universal? Because it's the earth. And our story has God, you know, creating not the land of Israel. Our story has God creating all of the earth, right? And so we have a responsibility to tend to all of the earth. At the same time, the, the religious responsibility comes into place specifically in the land of Israel. We've discussed before that the laws of Shemitah only obtain there. Um, and they're only obligatory for the Jew, right? We don't put uh, Shemitah in the category of like the seven Noahide laws, laws where, where just to be a, a reputable human being, you have to, you know, do a certain set of responsibilities to the land. No, that's a, it's a Jewish responsibility for Jewish land. But the, but the notion of land itself needing human attention in order to thrive is perhaps the most universal issue that there is, right? That's the one thing that every human being shares is the earth. That's something that we're, we're still arguing out in the year 2021, right? The extent to which, you know, I in Los Angeles and someone in Bangladesh and someone in South Korea uh, has to make decisions on a day-to-day and week-to-week and month-to-month basis to make sure that the entire earth will be sustainable and inhabitable in decades to come, right? That there's nothing more universal than that. But how I do it is very specific to my particular uh, place in the world. Okay, so um, with that, let's um, jump into the next um, the next section from Shabbat Haaretz. Okay, a reminder in case you'd forgotten, his Hebrew is really lovely and really inscrutable. Um, kudos to Julian Sinclair's translation. I've done a little bit of adapting of the translation when I thought it would just be clearer, uh, but I'm also still going to try to translate phrase by phrase. And I give myself like a preemptive B minus and how will I do it? Cause it's just really hard to figure out long sentences with, um, parenthetical clauses that are not clear where it ends. All of the punctuation here is ex post facto, right? They're guesses. And as you know, from like eats, shoots, and leaves, where a comma is uh, impacts the meaning. So these are guesses. Okay. The individual, lehid na'er, na'er means to shake. So lehid na'er like shakes himself or shakes herself. From the um, mundane life, from the life of the non-sacred, right? Chol can mean the days of the week that are not Shabbat. Chol can mean actions that are not specifically connected to mitzvah. Chol is the, the opposite of sanctity. Lefrakim krovim. Interesting phrase. A perek is a period of time. Krovim means close. Is he saying that it, that it happens occasionally? 
Is he saying that it happens frequently? Is he saying that it, it happens by itself or one ought to? We don't know. But, but the best way of translating is that, that the individual shakes off oneself from the reality of the mundane from time to time. When? The Chol Shabbat. Every Shabbat is an opportunity to elevate yourself from Chol. Chol is not bad. I want to make that very clear. Like Tuma and Tara, sometimes we, people misunderstand Tuma and Tara because we translate it into imperfect English as purity and impurity. If you're comparing purity to impurity, then purity is good, impurity is bad. There's no other way around that in the English language. Tuma and Tara, not necessarily. It may just be representing stage stages and essences in in the world tuma having to do with life ebbing right like when blood or or humors are leaving the body and tara is life flowing like flowing water uh, a corpse is tuma a corpse is not bad we don't want to die but a corpse just is a corpse is part of what it means to live in a world of life and death um so they are they, they are polar opposites but they're not necessarily value uh, in foreign polo opposites. Same thing with Chol and Kodesh, right? There's a long argument in the Talmud about whether or not in the Messianic era, we're going to forego Chol and just live in constant Shabbat. On the one hand, right, the religious Jew would say, what could be a greater Machaya than that? You know, Shabbos davening every day, chillant, whiskey and rest. And isn't, isn't, isn't that what we want to be aiming for? And the counter argument is, and you could articulate it as well, what the hell is the definition of Kodesh if you don't have some something whole that you're emerging from, right? That, so whole from that perspective is not bad. It's just not Kodesh. It's, it's, it's the, it's the regular and part of reality is the regular. Okay. So you have an opportunity to leave um, whole and to enter into Kodesh. Although he doesn't use that word yet. And he has this phrase, Ba Shabbat Ba a lovely little four word phrase. Shabbat comes. And there, and and rest comes. Um, um, ba, ba and ba'a because the, of the masculine and feminine uh, verb forms. I wanted to show you where that comes from. So I'm going to scroll down a bit. Uh, this is a uh, a borrowing um, from Rashi's commentary on the second verse of the second chapter of Breshit. It's in the Vayichulu paragraph, the end of creation, Vayichulu Hashemayim Arzachol Tzva'am, Vayichalim Yom HaShvi'i Malachto Asher Asa, that God um, finished Vayom HaShvi'i on the seventh day, all of the work that God had created. Put on your Rashi hats for a second and not your Rav Kook hats. If you're reading that verse, Vayichal Elohim Vayom HaShvi'i, that God completed the work on the seventh day, what question would you ask on that phrase? What what What, what might be odd about those four words. God completed on the seventh day all the work that God had done. What about that? It says Darshani, you know, drash me out. Anyone? Well, did God actually do any creation on Shabbat? Ah, right? We take it for granted because we know the davening, but that B of Bayom means on. Isn't it that God finished all the work before Shabbat so that Shabbat could be the day of rest? Right. We don't say traditional Jews that, you know, you work, 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 work on, on Friday and then you finished your work as Shabbat was beginning. No, no, no. You finish your work before Shabbat is beginning. In fact, for uh, Kvod Shabbat, you're supposed to 
finish your work with enough time before Shabbat actually begins. And never has it once happened in Jewish history that people have not been frenzied to light candles. I don't care what time. Shabbat begins at 4, Shabbat begins at 8.30. We're always running the last minute to finish up the things that we need to do. It's probably not the way it ought to be. But halachically, you're supposed to finish your work before Shabbat. So this is a classic Rashi. Um, and, and like most Rashis, he gives you the answer, but not the question. But uh, you provided the question, Larry. What does it mean to say that God finished the work on Shabbat? Rabbi Shimon Omer, Rabbi Shimon said, Basar Vadam, a human, Basar Vadam literally means flesh and blood, is Midrashic language or Talmudic language for referring to a non-god. She'eno yodea itav urga'av, who doesn't really have like a, like a divine and precise sense of times, eight is time and reg and moments. Sarif lahosif mechol al hakodesh. We've got to add, um, fr- um, from from the time that would be normally chol uh, and naked kodesh, which is why like a, a classic halach example of that is the eighteen minutes, right? You you light candles eighteen minutes before sunset so that you don't miss sunset. Or it's like less you know Sylvester and Tweety, right? You 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 make the line uh, farther away from the actual line so that you don't uh, you don't go into a dangerous zone. And why do we need that? Because we're human beings and we can't time it. Like, how, how long does it take for the sun to go down? No time. Like, it's a microsecond. It's a, it's a micro of a microsecond. And we can't time it that well. So we need to pull back a little bit. And that's halachically speaking. You have to, you're supposed to light candles 18 minutes beforehand. And even before that, you're supposed to put down your pen and put down your computer and put down your commerce a little bit of time before that. So you can reasonably and honorably, Kabot Shabbat, enter the Shabbat. That's us. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but the Holy Blessed One, listen, what, what's the time precision to the Holy One? The Holy One created time. God enters Shabbat in the thinness of a hair, right? You know, Shabbat's about to begin. Okay, now I'm done. And, and God can do that because God knows, you know, you know, it's like, you know, God is, is operating through a, a microscope where everything is uh, on a magnification level beyond what we can imagine. So it looks like God finished God's work on Shabbat. He didn't. God just finished a, you know, a billionth of a second before Shabbat began. And so it seemed like he was still working up until candle lighting. Don't worry. God wasn't. God finished the work of creation as just before the sun went down on, uh, on Shabbat on Friday afternoon. Davar acher. That, would, that part of it was interesting, but not connected to what Rav Hook is saying. Davar acher. Ma haya olam chaser. What is it after the six days of creation? We had birds and we had oceans, we had sun, we had moon and we had gazelle and we had human beings. What was missing? Such a beautiful question. Menucha. The thing that was missing was rest. And guess what? In our, con- our conception, everything has to be created, including rest. The, the, the cessation from rest and the cessation from creation needs to be created. So you could say God did work on Shabbat. God worked by creating menucha, by creating rest. Bat Shabbat, Shabbat comes, bat menucha. And as soon as Shabbat comes, therefore, God, the rest was born. And we can give credit to God for having done that on Shabbat, because God couldn't have done it before Shabbat, because there was no such thing as rest then. Kalta v'nigmara hamlacha. As soon as that got completed, that's when the work was done. So basically saying, no, work was not done Erev Shabbat. Work was done the moment Shabbat began and rest was introduced as a concept to the world. And therefore God um, um, was working 
on Shabbat. Okay. So uh, Rav Cook borrows that uh, just as a as a way of saying that every Shabbat brings us back to that first Shabbat where cessation and sanctity takes over from work and mundane. And as we go deeper into this paragraph, we're going to see that um, Rav Cook has a really interesting relationship with the concept of work. What happens in that moment? The soul, the nefesh, begins to free oneself. You might know the word lehishdachrer from like, like Israeli army culture. When you finally get your release from the army, it's called shichrur, right? You are released. So to free oneself, mikvaleha, from these, these cables. These, oops. You get that same, it's got a, like a, uh, a notice, something that we, gone missing, like an amber alert or something. Um, from these hard cables, um, hard chains that hold us down. Bayom, and I quote from Isaiah, Bayom haniach anay lecha meotzvecha, and that day that God releases you from your pain, from your etzev, umerogzecha, and from your anger and tumult, umina avodak ashan, from the hard work, asher ubadbach, that has been, that has been worn you down. And in that moment, what happens to the nefesh in that moment when you when we leave the work week? It requests, it seeks upper pathways, right? We want to depart from this world and enter into upper pathways. How often do you experience this way? We don't have to all confess here. But the idea is that when the candles are lit and the house is ready for Shabbat, come around the way to shul, We've departed the earth and we are walking the pathways of Shem somewhere up in the supernal realm. We are dealing with, and this is a wonderful turn of phrase because a chafetz is an object. There's nothing more mundane than a chafetz. It's a thing like, you know, a toy, something I bought, something that I acquired. But there are also chafatzim ruchaniim, spiritual things. I'm not sure what, he refer, what he's actually referring to there. Is it a sidur? Is it, is, it, is it actually like a tangible thing that has a spiritual component to it? Or is he just borrowing the word chafetz to refer to um, like a thing which is not a thing, but a, but, a, but a concept, a realm that you want to surround yourself in? Kefi teva mikorah, which is according to your core natural source. You think that you're departing from, from your natural way by entering into a realm of cessation on Shabbat. But according to Rav Cook, you're actually returning to your core natural source, which is to want to be in an upper realm and to want to be at rest. Then he quotes from uh, one of the Psalms from Kabbalah Shabbat, It is good to uh, acknowledge God and to praise God's name in the heavens. To speak of God's chesed in the morning, and God's faithfulness at night, on a 10 string harp, not sure exactly why he's using that verse there, unless he's just kind of um, stringing together little snippets of things that he imagines his readers will delight at hearing. Oh, that's that great Rashi from the beginning of, of, of Breshit that talks about the birth of Menucha. Ah, I'm in a paragraph about Shabbat, so I'm just I'm I'm hearing the tune in my head of Tov Hodol Adonai while he puts it in there. He's not. I don't see it as a, as a specific proof text to anything. Okay. And then he says, um, um, that uh, this is a, a covenant between me and between um, 
the Jewish people. Now back to his language, he's no longer quoting. Yom Kadosh, it's a day set apart. Asher botit netiyat through which the tendency of the nation will be revealed. Remember, this is why we talked about um, his notion of where, he, where he's planted on a, on a um, Yehuda Halevi versus Maimonidean approach. He believes that the Jewish people have an inherent tendency and it will be revealed through how it does Shabbat. What kind of tendency? We spoke about that wonderful adjective last time. It is the tendency of divine godly life, as they are, in some kind of unique, singular way. This Shabbat is a sign, a symbol, an indication for this nation. Remember that in Hebrew, Aleph Mem, Hey, and Ayin Mem can both refer to an um, a nation. Aim is is mother, but um with an aleph is nation, and am with an ayin is also a nation. This nation that has, through the treasure of its very soul, sorech, it has a need, v'yacholet, and an ability, lehit aneg al Hashem, to experience oneg, it's a reflexive verb, to be onegified, to be um, uh, delighted, with respect to God, the Noam Elohi and this divine pleasantness, Hamid Kanes Ruchanit, which is concentrated, Mit Kanes Lehit Kanes from it, it enters itself, but I think it here means concentrated in this spiritual point, Shel Nishama Yitira of that second soul. Some of you have heard that phrase. You you approach, appear, um, approach it in some of the Zmirot of Shabbat that when a Jew enters Shabbat. We not only have the regular neshama that's been toiling all week, it's not just that that neshama gets a break, but we get the gift of a neshama yitera, a second soul. We are double on Shabbat. It represents the second. There's a lot of, you know, double things on Shabbat, right? The lecha mishnah, the two loaves of Shabbat, two candlesticks, shamor v'zachor, the two different words that the Ten Commandments used to do Shabbat. The man, the double portion of man, the manna that came on Friday so that the Israelites would not have to gather on Shabbat. We get a second thing. On Shabbat, here it's in a second uh, soul. Sharui bilibo um, dwells deep within the heart. Shall kol yachid mi baneha from of, of all individual of the children of Israel. Okay, so in this paragraph, um, he's he's talking about uh, the 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 Jews' unique opportunity and obligation to use Shabbat as a way of going back to its core. So. Put that as the title because that ends up being the perfect transition to the next paragraph where on some level, finally, we get to what he's thinking about Shemitah, right? But it's the, it's the uh, cyclical opportunity to go back to what you, the person, or as is about to say, you, the land, originally were and strives to be, even if you don't know it, even if you're not aware of it, even if others around you are not aware that you need to tend in that direction, God knows and the universe knows. Let me pause here before we go into the next paragraph where he's going to connect this to Shemitah. Thoughts, comments, questions? Going once. Okay. Paragraph 10. Et otaha pu'ula. That thing I just described, Rav Cook says, pu'ula is an interesting word here because pu'ula means activity and it means something active. And I wonder if this is an intentional pun, which is the very thing that we're pulling back from on Shabbat. So he's actually calling the rest of Shabbat its own pu'ula. 
Shabbat poelet al koyachid, that Shabbat activates on every person. Maybe he's reading it as an inversion. Throughout the week, we are the poalim, we're the workers. But on Shabbat, Shabbat is the worker. Shabbat poelet, Shabbat is active on every individual. So we become the recipient of the work of Shabbat rather than the producer of work. And we're going to uh, discuss in a second how some of these ideas were also speaking to what was going on in the realm of labor and economics in the early 20th century, and um, in particular, the rise of socialism. And he was very sympathetic to socialism, not to communism, but to socialism, right? This is the rise of the kibbutz. This is the, 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 the worker as a, as a, as a holy uh, player in the workings of, of humanity. So the very thing that Shabbat does for the Jew, Shmita does, look at this language. He doesn't say, He doesn't say that Shmita does for the land what Shabbat does for the individual, but Shmita does for the nation what Shabbat does for the individual. It's an unexpected simile. When, when the Jewish people do Shemitah well, it does for the collective, the Knesset Israel, what a perfect Shabbat does for you, for your individual soul. There you're joining again, I see. Okay. There is a very special need that this nation has. The divine creative uh, urge is planted deep in, it's a her here because it's referring to Uma, which is feminine, or to Knesset Israel, which is feminine, is planted deep within her kishkas, but often bolet, in a way that is obvious, that stands out, venitzchi, and is eternal. This Jewish tendency, we're not trying to have it um, just mesh with all other ways of living in the world, we wanted to stand out. There's a part of our holding ourselves and our relationship with each other in the world that is bolet, that stands out. And remember, we said this last session, there's nothing we can do to end it. We, could, we, we, we can't kill this urge, nor can anyone else. It's nitzchi, it's eternal. Ki mizman lezman, from time to time, yitgalebe tocha hama'or ha'lohishala, the divine light that was within the Jewish soul will become revealed from within it. Behold, Melo Zoharo, in its full splendor. Uh, I love how, these, how he's using the word Zohar as a, a noun here, because Zohar means splendor, but it's probably also a wink-wink to the Zohar, from which he gets a lot of his, the Zohar, the name of the book, from which he gets a lot of his mystical material. Asher lo yashbituhu, it's very hard to translate this, chayei ha'evrashelchol, it's a four-hyphenated word. The life, the life, of the society of mundaneness, lo yashpituhu, cannot get rid of this. Also a great verb, yashpituhu, because remember that lishbot means to rest, Shabbat, but it also means to destroy, to, 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 to get rid of in the hefil. So th- th- this living with a cyclical an- um, annual concept of Shabbat, which is shmita, cannot mashbit, or sorry, uh, it, um, will never be mushbat, will never be defeated by no matter how much we are committed to our secular lives of living. Im ha'amal, with all of the travail, the hadaga, and the worry, hazaaf, the anger, 
hatacharut, the race, the competition. It's tiring to think about what it means to to live. I, and I say this as a a proud but um, torn capitalist. It's tiring to live in a constant human tacharut. And and these words relate to each other. Relate to each other because if you're in a tacharut, if you're in a race to the top of your species, of your company, of your socioeconomic status, then it's almost impossible to get there without amal, tremendous travail, and da'aga, worry, and za'af, anger. You at others, others at you, you at yourself. Asher lehen. There's nothing that an extended um, stay in that lower realm can do to defeat your deep Jewish urge to eventually transcend it. Laman tuchal lihitgalot so that one day you'll be able, um, it, it will be able to be revealed deep within you, taharat nishmata, this purity of one's soul, bechlaluta, in its completeness, kemoshu, as, it's, as, it, as it really is meant to be. Okay, so um, the way we're going to do this is to go through you know, each line slowly and then ask, what is he saying? So what is he, what, what, what is he saying in this paragraph that finally connects this notion of of what's essential about about the Jewish people to Shemitah. Larry, your hand is up. Either what either what you were going to say anyway, or or answer to that question. I'm not sure I have an answer to that question. <clears throat> it, it seems to me that he has. I'm not going to say confused, but he's overlaid Shabbat on Shemitah because all the things that you're talking about here <clears throat> about the inability to to completely disconnect from the toil and the turbulence, the anxiety <clears throat> of whole of the week is true on Shabbat. And I think, he, if I understand correctly, he's saying that that's also true about about Shemitah, about uh, the seventh year. He, so, he's, he's definitely saying that, yes. But, so but what, I'm not what, sure what, what's, yeah, what's... What's the question? What's the confusion there then? What's unique about Shemitah that makes it different from from Shabbat, why is why is how is it that Shemitah is going to help us to make a, a complete break or disconnect from all the stresses of of the world? I mean, I can see it if we're talking specifically about a, an agrarian society, because in an agrarian society, especially animal husbandry in particular, you never can be dis- disconnected. You've got to be always connected, and if you're working on the land. Maybe you say the same thing's true, and that if you follow if you follow the rules of of the shemitah completely, you have this dis, absolute disconnect that you can't even accomplish on Shabbat. But I'm not sure. While I'm thinking about that, I just put into the chat again the, the text sheet. I'm sharing it, but in case people want to have access to it afterwards, they can. Um, I think I understand your question. So if I understand your question, I'll, I'll hazard an answer, and then we'll see what what Sean has to say. I think he's saying that. While all of the Jewish people observe Shabbat at the same time, or you know, in time zones it changes, but the, the, the what Shabbat is meant to do is something special for each individual Jewish soul that's experiencing it. That finally gives that soul an opportunity to revert to what it was, which is to be um, com- communing with the divine in a supernal realm, and that's what we're aiming to achieve every Shabbat. And that, yes, collectively, 
that does, if, if all the Jewish people are doing it, then all the Jewish people will experience it, but its primary influence is on the individual Jew. He's going to make the argument that, that somehow, he hasn't, he hasn't finished the argument, but he's going to make the argument that somehow the Jewish people as a collective doing Shemitah well will, will actually do that on a collective level. It, it actually is the, is the mitzvah which most closely boomerangs Knesset Yisrael back to its uh, initial state which is to understand the beautiful harmony that exists between the earth and the heavens, between this world and that world, um, and allows, the, allows that, that, that harmonic relationship to, to, to continue. And uh, you, you, you don't have to split it the way he has. You could say, well, every individual observant of Shemitah helps that individual feel that connection more strongly, just like every individual person observing Shabbat helps. But he's somehow making the argument that because it's connected to the land and the land is a, is a, is a grand thing that all of the Jewish people have the opportunity and obligation to um, let that deep part of the Jewish soul express itself. If Shemitah is taken seriously and by extension, if not where we've lost that, now, we haven't lost it forever. It's, it's eternal. It's a swing and a miss, right? So the Jewish people forgot to do Shemitah this year. Okay, the, the, the earth might be damaged as a result, and we will have lost an opportunity to ex- express that part of our spiritual realities. Oh, but we have another chance seven years uh, from now, in the same way that if you, if you don't observe this Shabbat, okay, next Shabbat is waiting for you. Uh, Sean. Thanks. Um, it's really interesting, the move he's making here, in that he's at one time collapsing the distinctions he's making between humans and the land, but also relocating or shifting human qualities onto the land. So, you know, he spent these paragraphs building up and talking about the innate holiness or the hidden holiness of a human being. And then he gets very specific with his, you know, list of nouns, you know, their toil, anxiety, anger, competition. And then he makes the, this rhetorical shift here to talking about the land and I'm not quite sure what the linkage is or how, how can the land itself, I mean, it feels like a very passive entity that, you know, the land doesn't have anxiety or anger or competition. It's something that we place on the land. So we're externalizing these aspects and then, you know, the land is in essence personifying all of that. Yeah. I don't have a great answer to that, but I think it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a good, if not critique, it's a good read of, of a piece of this that is not fully yet fleshed out. And remember, We're doing this very slowly, which means that we're assessing the argument, you know, that he's trying to make in step two of a 20 step process. But right. Yes. Um, he, he, at this point in what we've read, he's not given us any indication as to why it is the case that Shemitah and, and a focus on the land has this kind of grand impact on the soul of the Jewish people. He's just saying that it does, but, we ha- but he hasn't proved it in any way. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca and then uh, Bonnie. Um. I wanted to add to that, that during the Shemat Shemitah, there are a few other things that happen, which is the, uh, the, the Shemitah Tzavot and some other more social um, release of, of stress and, and uh, anxiety that might, be, um, that might have that effect on a society. The fact that every seven years, certain, um, certain stress is relieved certain, or certain pressure is relieved in some way um, is similar to the Shabbat, but on a more social scale. Great. So it's not, so 
it's a helpful reminder that we tend to think of Shemitah as primarily having to do with the soil, and that's a significant aspect of it, but there were also economic forces that got um, released or, or, or um, uh, they, they were depressurized when Shemitah came, more so at Yovel on the, on the, on the, the year of the 50 after seven Shemitah cycles where land actually reverted back to what it had been, but a forgiveness of debts. Um, listen, if you, if you read the, the double Parsha, Parshat Bahar B'chukotai, you basically have the, um, the recipe for a society of no poverty and no wealth, right? You can't have no poverty without no wealth um, and uh, no dispossession from the land. You have the basic uh, blueprint for uh, a healthy kibbutz. And you have the idea that some of what we, we are all prisoners of, sometimes we're happy prisoners, but, but prisoners of this intense, um, um, financially uh, overwhelming society that we're living through, there, there's a recipe that, um, that is free from some of that. And that's what animates a lot of uh, the economic theory that is prevalent at this time. And if we have time today, we'll read a little bit about what he thought about um, the, the, the emergence of socialism and its political uh, representation in communism, parts of it you can imagine he was very drawn by and parts of it that he thought actually would be um, taken advantage of by people who were less scrupulous and turned into its own, um, its own prison. Uh, Bonnie? Yes, well, let's see if I can articulate my thoughts. <laughs> um, I, I agree with uh, Rebecca about the social aspect, but I also think that Certainly, given today and the state of the of the state of the earth of our globe of our place that we live, you can see that in using every week a Shabbat that helps us to rest and to go on and do what we need to do the rest of the time to have our our social lives and our and and things like that. That the earth too, and yes, the earth may not have the stress in the way we do, but it is stressed. And there are aspects of, of water and land and trees and plants that need to have the same kind of rest as, as human beings. Great. Stressed, fatigued, right? I mean, we, we, we can really use that language well now. And, and I don't know the extent to which early 20th century um, ecologists um, and, and experts on the land were aware of what might be about to be happening to, to, to the earth and its climate, its environment. But we can, all, all these uh, words above of, uh, of uh, where was it? It was rogues, it was anger and, and weariness and, um, and competition. That is, that is plaguing both the human population that is trying to squeeze as much as we possibly can out of the earth and therefore plaguing the earth itself. And I think that's a fair thing to say, no matter where you plot yourself on the political spectrum and what everyone thinks about the best way to impact uh, um, concerns on, the, on a cl- climate level, the earth is weary and running out of, and running out of resources. And it's, as re- and it's as a result, at least partially, of natural, beautiful human development and the industrial revolution and partly as a result of our constantly being on a race to be at the top, right? It makes a lot of anthropological sense, but it's not necessarily good for us or the planet. Sean, is your hand up again or still? No, okay. Um, since we're running out of time and I have an interview I have to conduct actually at one o'clock, I want to skip a paragraph um, and go to here. 
harchaka, that distancing, which he discusses more in the previous paragraph, the distancing that is caused by our being on this, uh, on this race. Mifapa'at, great word. It, it kind of invades, flutters, and pushes in. Ke'eres, like a poison. Gam b'musaram shalayachidim. Uh, in the morality of the individual, right? We know that, right? To be on this race, it is going to drive you to do things you know you ought not do, right? There's no need to thieve if your needs are taken care of, right? Like who would steal anything on a kibbutz? I'm sure there were, there were SOBs who would do things like that, right? That, but, but the, the, you're, you're driven in this world, uh, towards doing things that take you out of your moral, um, moral comfort zone. When you put a pause, hafsakat is on the way of talking about Shabbat, to the, the, the social order, the social order that you rely on, in certain ways that you can predict, occasionally, right? Not all the time, right? Again, that Talmudic argument that we don't want Shabbat in perpetuity. We couldn't live with Shemitah in perpetuity. When you do it, you don't want to do it because you're very comfortable in your life. It brings to this nation, when it is well-ordered, wonderful um, parallel of seder and misuderet. So when you, when you stop the social seder that you're relying on to make society work, if you do it in a way that is misuderet, ordered, focused, according to the halachot, the very halachot that he's going to be um, spending a whole lot of time teaching in the midsection of this book, right? We're just in the haktama. Al mechona in the in the way that it's supposed to be established lidei aliyatah atzmit that brings you towards this this uh, ascent of the self limromei hatchunot haprimiot to the heights it's it's an interesting way of dealing with high and low the heights of the internal um, character shebachayim hamusariim that exist in moral lives, varuchaniim, and spiritual lives, mitzad hatochan halohibishabahem, and in a way that is most closely attached to what is divine in each of us. Haomed lamala lamala mikol tachsis v'seder. This is a thing, this is a reality that stands way above any um, strategy or, or um, idea that you have. V'seder chavati, any social order. V'hu me'abed and another great use of word, remember in Hebrew, depending on which binyan a root is, it changes the meaning radically. So oved is to work. Le'abed, same root in the pl, means to, to process, and process can mean to process something such that it's far from its core. It can also mean a very significant thing, which is uh, a process that has to happen that um, this release, this retreat, which is a retreat from avodah, me'abed, it processes and elevates at hastarim ha'chevratiim, the social order, v'notein lehem et mutam, and brings them to their completion. Meaning, he's saying, if you don't do shmita as a halachic practice, as a concept, there is nothing in the human social and he's going to add capitalist order that will stop itself from going out of control, right? What, what are the checks and balances in a, in a, in a capitalist economy that prevents society from continuing to go in a direction that ultimately will not be beneficial for it or the earth? Nothing. 
right? It, sometimes I talk to uh, my staff when we talk about being overloaded and burnout, and I say to them, even in a in a benevolent community such as ours, and we are a very benevolent community where people understand one another and try to be good to each other. There's nothing natural in the way that synagogue life works that's ever going to itself step out and announce to you, it's time for you to step back and take care of yourself. It'll just devour more and more of you, not because it's a it's a horrible thing, but because it, 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 it's, it's, it's a, the work itself is a being that will, that will never cease to need something from you, right? You've got to be the one to say, I'm committed to this work very much so. And I'm also committed to restoration. It will not say it for you. It might contractually tell you how many days you're supposed to take off in a, in a year, but it, it won't actually bring you to that oasis. You have to bring yourself. Right? So he's saying something on a national level. There's nothing about the development of the society and the economy that we're living in that will announce from inside itself, hey, it's time we take a step back and live differently. No, it'll just grow like entropy. Um, let's end here. What I'd like to do, um, because I have to get on this uh, interview, uh, there's so much more material to discuss, and I'm loving exploring this with you. If there's a hunger, even amongst four or five of you, to continue studying this after the new year, because I'm not going to be available between now and then, I'd love to do that. Maybe send me an email. Um, and if there's a core group, we'll, we'll keep this going because there's there's a lot more richness for us to uncover uh, in Rav Cook's work. And it's a great homage to uh, to him and to the Shemitah year in which we're living. And a reminder that as much as we're on our own rat race on some level, and frankly, I, I rely on it. We're not for the wonderful capitalist successes of the members of our community. We wouldn't be able to sustain this this building and, and this and this life in the synagogue. So we're, we're a part of it. But because we're a part of it um, with a Jewish lens, we can also pull back and say what's missing from it, what's unhealthy about it, and what can Shemitah teach us to make us approach it a little bit better. Adkan, have a wonderful day. Bye, everybody. Speak to you soon. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.